Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 283. Interview with Jennifer Marie Brzezet, brought to you by Islands, the Bane audio production of Eric Flint's original novella. And now, podstructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy literature. This is Sean Farrell. If this is your first time listening, thank you so much for checking us out, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, Brent Bowen brings us an interview with Jennifer Marie Brzezette, who graduated from Stone Coast, uh, the MFA program out at the University of Maine. And she actually learned about the program there through the Clarion series that we did in 2008 when I had the opportunity to interview all of the guest instructors of Clarion, including Neil Gaiman and James Patrick Kelly, who teaches at at Stone Coast. So uh, it was great to hear as I was listening to this interview for the first time this morning that the podcast had such an impact on a writer finding an avenue through which she could develop her writing and explore her creativity and now her debut novel is out, just released, and it's very exciting to have her on the show. Uh, after the interview, I'm going to discuss some new books that have come out. I want to do this once a month or so to highlight some of the books that were sent into the studio uh, translation, My House, um, <laughs> that that really interest me and that look of interest to me. And those new titles it will include books by George R.R. R. Martin and Frank Herbert and I'm going to leave the third one as a surprise. So do stick around for a couple of minutes after the interview. You may find a new book that you could pick up for Christmas uh, for a loved one in your life. All right, let's get right into the interview with Jennifer. This is Brent Bowen. I'm so pleased to welcome our guest. She's a science fiction writer and former indie bookstore owner. While she's written many shorts, you can find her works in such places as Morpheus Tales, The Best of Halfway Down the Stairs, 2005 to 2010, and she's been a finalist for the 2013 Story South Million Writers Award. Her debut novel, Elysium, not to be confused with the 2013 Matt Damon movie. This is not a novelization, not even close to being a novelization, folks. It was just released. Jennifer Marie Brissett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Yeah, I'm so I'm so pleased we could do this. It's been a long time in the making. You and I met at the 2013 WorldCon. I think yeah, Jamie yeah. Todd Yeah, Jamie Todd Rubin pulled me aside and said, Brent, I have somebody that you absolutely yeah. have to meet. And I've been waiting for this day for this book to come out. And I have to tell you, you know, I re- received your advance review copy. And I, I can't say that I adored the book because Elysium is not the kind of book you adore. But mm-hmm. I, I was it was extremely thought provoking. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. Uh, it's one of those books where I finished it two, three weeks ago. And as I've set other books aside, my thoughts continue to return back to to it. So mm-hmm. I have just absolutely thoroughly enjoyed the book. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, let's let's start with it. And and based on its structure, it's going to be a little bit hard to talk about. But let's attempt to talk about it without giving away the whole shebang. Now, hopefully you have a little practice in doing this at conventions, what have you. But what, what can you tell our listeners about it? Well, Elysium is basically it's the story of two people uh, who share a very strong love for each other and it the, the story is is told in a spiral narrative which means it's a telling of a, a same a similar story over and over and over again where these two people lose each other but they've changed major aspects of who and what they are and the kind of relationship they have so um sometimes there are sex changes sometimes their brother and sister. Sometimes they're a father and daughter. Sometimes they're um, they're um, male gay lovers. Sometimes they're female gay lovers. They're, but what one thing that remains constant is a deep love for each other. 
and in the midst of all of that, um, the the world in which they exist is is sort of coming apart in some way. The world is 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 breaking apart. Maybe on it could be on a political level, or it could be on, but mostly it's also on a physical level. Like physically, the buildings are falling down and things like that. And I hope that's a. I hope I didn't give away too much. No, I, I, I think you've created a nice veil for us to at least start working from in talking about the book without without giving away too much. So, the main protagonist is Adrian, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things I really appreciated about about the book was this notion of you exploring the concept of love, and then Adrian would play. Uh, be a certain gender, maybe in in one vignette, and then mm-hmm. the the secondary character was Antoine or Antoinette, and he or she would be another gender, but not only gender, but would be play a different role or relationship. They would play a different role or relationship or sexual orientation with one another, and it allowed the reader to explore different facets of of the notion of love. Yeah. But not only that. You also exude this concept or focus on this concept of immortality or remembrance. And and what about those subjects in Elysium, you know, when you were working on the book, said, you know, these are things I want to explore as, as I'm writing this? Well, when I was writing the book, actually, the book was my, my thesis from Stone Coast, and I had had just gone through a lot of really tough stuff and in my life and Stone Coast kind of came into my life and sort of, I really started to seriously write and it just sort of came to me. It, the book started to unravel itself because it was not my intention to really talk about so much loss, but I had just experienced so much loss in my own personal life. I mean, um, I, my bookstore closed and I lost some friends and and some loved ones. And it was really, uh, a, a, it was a tough time. And things started to come out in the book in that the idea of, um, of people just sort of disappearing on me. You know, people that I just thought I would see again, just, just disappearing. I had a friend who died in a motorcycle accident. And, you know, I had a, a, a woman who was, you know, we were working on becoming friends. We was, you know, getting closer, and she died in um, one of the buildings that went down in 9-11. And, I mean, I didn't even realize I was sort of walking around with that stuff. And it, and it sort of was coming out in this book of, 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 of people just disappearing. And, 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 I mean, it's kind of weird that I sort of chose to use this sort of science fictional way to express this <laughs> this thing but I just didn't really know I mean once it started to happen I, and in the book I was like you know I really should just continue down this thing and and really keep keep playing with this idea and and it was also the idea that you know love is love like if it's a friendship that's a kind of love a brother and sister is the kind of love you know all of these all all of these connections that we have with people they're they're serious they're, they're serious relationships, and when they're gone, when that person disappears, it doesn't matter whether the relationship, how the relationship came about, or you know, it's still there's still a deep loss. And I and I sort of wanted to explore that, and that's what, how the books. I mean, somewhat what was going on my mind, going through my mind as I was working on the book. So you mentioned Stone Coast through that exploration and. Uh, the writing process that this was your your thesis was was that a conclusion you came to pretty early on or was that something uh, tell our listeners a little bit about stone coast if they're not familiar with it and then well kind of the, yeah. maybe some of the support you you got through walking through that journey in that program well actually i i owe a lot to this this podcast for this <laughs> because um basically i'm just going to tell this because i just want to i just love the story Back um, in 2008, when um, Clarion was having, you know, it was like crazy, inst- amazing instructors, Neil Gaiman and uh, Dave Spector Kelly and, and all, all these people were, were teaching. And I, like everybody else, 
applied and didn't get in. <laughs> and but all of those those instructors after they finished the week of Clarion came on to your podcast and would talk about what happened at that week. And I listened to all of them on your show. And when it came to James Patrick Kelly, he started going on and on about uh, the program that he was teaching at called Stone Coast. And it sounded so interesting. And I was just, you know, I I applied because I just thought, you know, I'm probably going to get rejected, you know. You know, I didn't really think that I was that good. So, but I said, I'm going to apply anyway. And, and I got in and it was just this major shock. And it, James Patrick Kelly ended up being one of my first mentors. And uh, that was definitely a shock. <laughs> and, and it was an incredibly supportive environment. It really helped me with my confidence, which is, I think was something that was really battered. And really was a great place for me to explore the different things I can do with writing, not just in genre, but they had that I really was influenced by the poetry section and the, the creative nonfiction section as well. I took seminars with them. So, um, I mean, I, I, I actually listened to some nature writing, which, you know, is kind of crazy, but I was, you know, I started to do that, but it really, those kind of, Nature writing was really interesting to me because it really taught me about listening and paying attention and those quiet moments of being at one with your environment, which is so much a part of being a science fiction writer and making worlds seem real and feel real. You know, it was just—it was just such a great program, and I had awesome, awesome, awesome mentors. David Anthony Durham was my was one of my mentors. Uh, Ted Deppie, who's a poet, was one of my mentors. He actually was the mentor I started writing the book with, and my last mentor was Elizabeth Hand. So I really got—I really, really, really lucked out with who I got to work with, and it was an amazing experience. And I think the book really benefited from their encouragement along the way. And you can feel the sense of quiet and the sense of reflection, I think, in Elysium. So I, I'm glad you shared that experience and and I, I'm sorry for your sense of loss and that it but we will be able to embrace that from you sharing it within Elysium. So well, thank you. But I mean I think you know it's not just I mean it wasn't, it's not just me. I mean, it's just like, you know, I live in a city that went through that. And, you know, unfortunately, there was like so much other stuff that's political stuff that happened that the city really didn't get a chance to sort of really fit with what happened. Mm-hmm. And, and just sort of, I mean, I mean, I think we have tried, I think different people have tried a lot to sort of just fit with the realization that uh, of being vulnerable and all that, all the stuff that goes with it. And, but I think there's something that in general, people kind of have to deal with every day. I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of, I, I think it's important for us to sort of remember that we will be remembered and that there are ways to be remembered and that, you know, that your loved ones don't just go away they're around as long as you remember them. And that was a big part of the Hadrian Antinous theme that ran through the, uh, the book. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> yeah. And we're, and we're, we're getting on to some of the, the fringes of, of giving some things away too. So yeah, I know. No, I just feel like that. <laughs> I was like, uh Oh, I better pull back a little bit. <laughs> So I'm gonna I'm gonna move us on to form a little bit, and and normally I don't talk a lot about or ask questions of form so much. But one of the things I thought really compelling, and then even when you read the jacket copy from James Patrick Kelly, he calls the book audacious, and you read some of the early reviews, and it's called ambitious, and and some of that I think it has to do with the narrative structure. I mean, you you as a debut novelist, you decided, yeah, hey, I'm gonna write a whole book, and we're not going to do the three act structure. We're going to go into this spiral. <laughs> we're yeah. going to go into the spiral narrative, and I'm going to go punch it in the nose. 
So, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so your narrative form itself, you know, your narrative plays with, with form. You intersperse computer code. Not only do you do that, you intersperse computer code that uh, reveals that narrative form in a way that almost evokes its own. I, I kept thinking of it almost like it, it's evoking its own consciousness. Yeah. And actually you're right <laughs> <laughs> and and I knew that by the time I, I got to some places so but for you as a debut novelist how did how did you arrive at these devices and you know and ultimately how difficult did it prove to execute did you end up executing it at Stone Coast or and complete all of that at Stone Coast or you know uh, actually I did <laughs> I remember <laughs> when I was trying to finish it up in my last semester um, live hand with my mentor and I remember she wrote and one of some of the chapters that I sent her she said this book scares me (laughs) (laughs) I am afraid for you but keep going (laughs) and and I think once I I had the idea of what I wanted to do it sort of started to fit together like computer code I used to be a coder uh, many years ago before the bookstore that's actually how I I got the money for the bookstore. It was an internet startup, and I and I had an IPO, and all, all that money's gone now. But but I was a coder, and and one thing that I always noticed when I programmed was there is there's more of an art to it than a science, and it's uh, and it does speak. You can you, know, you the code not just through the comments that you can write in your code, but the the way code is structured, you know. It, 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 it can have its own sort of personality. If you play with Unix at all, you see demons and the number 666 shows up all over the place. And, and it's doing all kinds of its own thing because that's how the originators of the program, uh, of the operating system, designed it. And I realized, you know, that's always been sort of in the back of my mind, but I didn't know what to do with it. And then when it occurred to me with this book that I could have the com- the computer code sort of be almost another character of the book. It just all started to fit and it's all started to make sense to me in my mind. The spiral nature is not something new. Other people have played with spirals and I've really kind of enjoyed them. Like 100 Years of Solitude is somewhat of a spiral. I'm trying to think of another book that, um, that I've enjoyed that's a spiral. Oh gosh, it's slipping my mind. It might come to me in a bit, but the idea of cycling through, oh, I'm thinking of Faulkner. Yeah. Uh, I want to say FLA Diet, but I don't, know, I don't think that's correct. But anyway, but the idea of having a character sort of reappear and, and sort of change gears a little bit and switch around and, and, and spiral around is, is something other authors have played with. I just sort of did it with computer code. And, and I just wanted to just, I thought it was just really important to sort of explore that there is an essence of somebody that regardless of the outer changes, the outer shell of a person, you know, what sex they are, what race they are, uh, what their sexual orientation are, even their age, because I do play with age in the book. I have children and I have old people. That the essence of who they are is something that is sort of uh, a constant. And And the way to do that in my mind, in my crazy mind, was to, you know, constantly change those out of things. But while I'm changing those out of things, really sort of sit and sort of explore those inner things. And I think one of the best ways to sort of uh, know a person is to see how they react to changing situations. And I mean, um, Stone Coast was just a good place for me to be, to be doing this because it was, because it's, it's a low residency program. So I, you know, you spend most of your time at home just writing and sending in packets into your mentors and occasionally a phone call or email and and, and things like that. And so if you have questions, you have somebody to sort of bounce ideas off of or or feel like encouragement with. And I think, I think, you know, could I have written this book if I was not in Stone Coast? Yeah, maybe that I could have. 
but I don't think it would have, I would have had the confidence to see it all the way through. And, and, that, and, and I really, I'm really, really glad for that. And, and now I feel like I can go on and write other books because this was so, this was challenging, but it was sort of exciting at the same time. So, you know, when I finally got to that last bit, when it really tied together and I was just, you know, I just felt this big, oh my God, I, I did it. I can't believe I just did that. <laughs> When I was talking about uh, the spiral narrative, I just remember when I was at Viable Paradise in 2009 and we were going through narrative structure. It's not the fact that you executed it, but with it was the gumption of a debut novelist to do it. We were talking about the narrative structures and, you know, spiral being one of the most difficult to execute. So uh, kudos for you for doing it in such a powerful way and kind of spinning what I, again, and you mentioned this, you kind of spun the room on the character, but left the essence, left the essence of the character intact through, through each of those vignettes, which I thought was particularly powerful. Well, let me add one thing to that is that um, ignorance is bliss. (laughs) (laughs) I did not know that. (laughs) I I mean, I really didn't have any idea that this was going to be like one of the more difficult things to do. It was just how my mind was working. And so uh, maybe if I had realized (laughs) that this was going to be like this thing, um, maybe I would have backed away. But, you know, so I'm glad I didn't know that. (laughs) That's good. You just shrugged and went. Seems like the story would work this way. Let's get at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all. No, that's awesome. Bane Books Audio Drama and the Bane Free Radio Hour Podcast present a four-part full-cast audio play adaptation of Islands, a novella by alternate history master Eric Flint, set within the world of the Balsarius alternate history series created by Eric Flint and David Drake. The adaptation script is by science fiction writer Tony Daniel. Islands is a lushly produced adaptation with film quality sound effects and all original music and acting by a professional cast. It's like a movie in sound, says scriptwriter Daniel, and runs about the length of a film too, at one hour and 30 minutes. The story takes place in the Roman Empire of about 750 AD, the Byzantine era. An AI from the future has shown up, bringing technological knowledge. The Romans and Islands have the telegraph, muzzle-loaded rifles, and steam-powered ships. In the midst of this transformation, an epic love story unfolds. Along with Warzone action, the story has a strong and heroic female lead. Islands is the coming-of-age story of a young man maimed by the terror of war and his wife through arranged marriage, who journeys toward him through the horror of a rear area filled with wounded men, wounded men for whom she becomes a saint and a savior. We are so pleased that this podcast is brought to you by the Bane adaptation of Islands by Eric Flint. So do come to the show notes page of episode 283, this episode right here, to learn more or use the image that you'll find on the homepage at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing.com. You can go directly to our sponsor by going to baneebooks.com and putting the search term Islands in the search bar. Check it out. You'll be happy you did. Well, let's let's also talk about one other thing you do in the book that's not you spinning the room around your character. Uh, and it's something you do for the reader. Again, it's another form thing where you use some repeating elements or symbols to help ground the reader and then tie them back to powerful moments in the story. Uh, how, how are those were those chosen? In, in constructing the story, because I know that some of them have some symbolic significance as well, particularly the, you know, it's particularly the, the elk in the yeah. story, which is even on the cut. Co- I mean, you, you just have to look. But again, it's even muted on the on the cover because it's in, you know, it's outlined in black and yeah. particularly the elk. How, did, how were some of those symbols or elements chosen for the book? Well, the, the elk image Okay. I'm like, where it initially comes from, I'm not even quite sure. It was something that just sort of appeared in my mind. There was a movie that came out with Will Smith a few years ago where he was living in... It's, it's the remake of the, that old Vincent Price movie. And his character was living in the middle of Washington Square, Washington Square Park. And there's a, there's a scene in the movie where lions are sort of 
walking mm. around these old cars, you know, like wild animals are just sort of roaming around. You're talking about middle, I, you know. you're talking about I am legend. Perfect. That's okay. exactly it. Okay. And and that was an image that sort of stayed in my mind a little bit because you know, it's just not normal for like a wild animal to walk around in New York. And in the, I mean, it's right in the opening of the book where I sort of put the elk right there. And it, it was just such a potent image of this wild, huge animal nonchalantly walking through a busy New York street during the afternoon. And for me, it was like a symbol of nature kind of taking things back mm-hmm. and the urban structure being invaded by nature. And I have that a lot going on in the book. And I mean, if you know anything, I mean, you're probably getting a sense that I, I know I, I, I see a lot of movies and documentaries, especially at that time, I was watching a lot of documentaries. And one of the documentaries I was watching is uh, The World After, I think it's called, or, um, you know, the one where all of the documentary where they sort of show you life after people. That's it. Mm. Life after people. And you start to see the, the city sort of getting taken back by nature. The trees sort of taking things, the buildings crumbling and, and the, the, the brooks that you stopped moving, coming back. And critters start running around and taking over. And I really like those ideas of Nature invading, the owl sort of invading was another image that I that I played with. See, I don't want to give too much stuff away, so I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to go around. <laughs> so I don't so I don't play with it. But the green dot was also a very important yep. image for me it was. Um, because it, it it was something that was just it was telling you something without you it, you had to pay attention to sort of see where I was going with this. And even as I was working with that, I was like, this might not work, but I'm going to, and I guess what this book taught me was to trust my instinct. And even if they feel wacky to write them down anyway, and to not hold them back. Because I mean, I think, I mean, in a strange way, maybe going through all of the stuff that I went through, it sort of taught me that it, 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 why waste time? Why, why hold back? Why, why not take the risk? Put the thing down. If it doesn't work, nobody needs to see it. It's, you know, it's fine. Or you can just take it out later. Don't self-censure yourself. So I put in these elements as they were kind of forming in my mind. And they started to over time, when I started kind of going over what I had just done, you know, like I would finish two chapters, maybe I would do like two chapters a month or something like that. And I would go over what I had done and I would say, you know what? I'm starting to see patterns here. Let me explore those patterns and overlay some of these, these, these symbols and images and see how they work. And it would be so surprising that, you know, maybe even on a subconscious level, Something would connect from like a chapter 21 would connect back to chapter three. And I was like, oh, I can really connect that, that symbol because it's very potent. And it, it, was, it became like a puzzle, like a jigsaw puzzle that I was putting together and piecing together. And really, a lot of times it was just trusting my instinct as I was going. And I thought it effectively worked. And I don't know if this was working on some sort of subconscious level or it was even intentional, but the, one of the things I noticed about the elk in particular, and I think the the green dot worked as well, but with the elk was that the elk would always seem to appear at some sort of, or right after some sort of poignant moment, like emotional Mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, you had, it worked as a threading device kind of throughout all of the narrative to all of these emotional moments within each of the vignettes. Yeah. At least I recalled without, and I've only read it the once I haven't gone back to prove my theory. Oh, you want to read it again. (laughs) See, See, now you've got me going, playing a game of going back. Am I, you know, am I, am I right? So, but I thought they were particularly effective and something else that was really effective. So we've talked about, 
invading the narrative, you know, with nature and including all these symbols. But what I'll, I also thought you were extremely effective of doing, and at one point I was actually singing out loud, is including, you were juxtaposing these invasions with things that denoted certain time and place and we were comfortable with and uh, may have been a norm for certain people. And, and it, you know, in one particular chapter, I'm chuckling because I'm sitting there singing and I'm like, did someone say Grandmaster Flash? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that chapter. <laughs> Actually, that was a lot of fun when I really realized that I could sort of do a, um, a whole chapter sort of really about hip hop and that time in New York when New York was really a dystopic place. I mean, it was really, I don't want to say, maybe it was a little post-apocalyptic too. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, I used to come here, come here when I was a kid. My father wouldn't really let me, you know, venture too far because it was, New York was no joke back then. But there was graffiti everywhere. And, you know, the whole neighborhoods were just devastated in the Bronx. And, you know, it was just... It was just really um, an interesting time in New York, but it was also a time of of music and a time of reinvention, which is kind of, you know, almost the theme of the book is reinvention, taking things that should not work. And, and you know, I'm going to take this record player because I don't have an instrument and I'm going to turn it into an instrument and I'm going <laughs> to, you know, become a DJ. And, and, and even the message, which is was one of the more most important things that I heard as a kid, you know, broken glass everywhere, people pissing in the car. Uh, should I even say that? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're <laughs> fine. That's PG-13. <laughs> yeah, we've had, rate, we've had rated R. We try and stay away from rated R, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was PG-13. You're fine. Okay. <laughs> but I, I knew that entire rap by heart when I was a kid. And it was really important for me in that chapter to sort of explore what it was that kids were doing to sort of reclaim their city and reclaim their environment. And graffiti, there was like different kinds of graffiti. And, one, you know, they had the bubble letters and stuff like that. But the memorial graffiti, the memorial pictures that showed up for kids who got killed and things were really, really important. And there's still little hints of them here and there that you can see where somebody would just paint a picture of somebody who died and nobody would touch it. It would just be, you know, that's an important memorial that needed to be there. And so graffiti was a big part of just, you know, putting a mark on the city saying, I am here in a strange way, beautifying the city, even though the city was sort of fighting that mm -hmm. at the time, you know, on the trains, trying to keep them clean. And, and I remember actually in the, in the book, there's a poem that I take from Saul Williams. Let's see, it's, the, the name of his book is called Dead Scrolls, the, the Dead MC Scroll. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the first part of his, it, it's, it's a book of poetry because he's a spoken word poet. But in the beginning part I, of the book was so much a genre story. It's about how this kid finds these, these clothes rolled up in spray cans that tell, and and they're called the dead MC scrolls, and then they give him all the this this ideas of how life is supposed to work, and and it's just so much a part of the mystery and the magic of that time when hip hop was being born in this city, and I wanted to really sort of kind of celebrate that and memorialize that and sort of honor that in this book because it just sort of fit that there would be these two kids who, you know, who one is doing graffiti in one way, another kid is doing the graffiti in a different way, but they were both sort of experiencing this sort of, the city that has fallen apart and they're, start, and they're trying to figure out how to live in it. So it wasn't really just to, you know, to sort of inject pop culture in it. It was more it was really very specific. It was really, really about the early days of hip hop and what it meant to that, you know, I guess, I, I guess it's my generation because I'm in, I'm in my 40s. <laughs> and it was really an important, you know, time for us because it was just, it was a difficult time 
But out of it came out something really, really powerful and, and wonderful. And I really wanted to celebrate that. So, yeah, his, it, as much a historical reference then as anything, which pop culture definitely is a is part of our part of our history. A couple times during our, our chat, you've you've memorialized whether you've realized it or not your bookstore. So most of the listeners may not know, although I mentioned it in the introduction that you were an indie bookseller for more than three and a half years. And tell us a little bit about the bookstore, but also how, how has that experience shaped you as a writer? And then also maybe how you're handling this debut. Oh man, that's loaded, <laughs> loaded question. <laughs> well, you're supposed to have a little experience with that now, so yeah. <laughs> learn from the the mistakes of others, or learn from the wise, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the store was wow. The store was a very special place. It it was this great idea and it's one of those things and it's a great idea and then you try to do it. <laughs> it, it, it it was a small bookstore and it had a little cafe in the back and I designed it and pretty much built it <laughs> I mean I did have construction workers but you know a lot of the stuff that went into it was just me and I had a little backyard and I cleared out all this crap that was back there and I made this beautiful little garden and I mean I really put a lot of heart and soul into it we had author readings and all kinds of stuff so it was really a special place and what was the name of the bookstore it was it was named um, Indigo Cafe and Books and it was in Fort Greene Brooklyn back in the day and I mean I, I mean fortunately unfortunately I mean depends on how you look at it I mean when I opened up the store it was just as all hell was breaking loose in the country I mean we had that major recession and it was like you know People were just losing their jobs left, right, and center. And, you know, we were really trying to hang on as best we could, but it was really a tough time to to be doing anything much less selling books. <laughs> <laughs> and, but in terms of what it taught me, it taught me a lot about the business of books, the, like the money behind it, how how the industry kind of operates. So that's, that aspect is one thing. But also um, I got... I got to talk to a lot of authors who, you know, working authors who are doing this and both fiction and nonfiction. And you got to hear a lot about their process. You got to see them, you know, do the author signings and just how tough a profession this is. This is a really, this is really something that is an act of love. There's no question (laughs) to be doing anything to do with books at all, with literature at all. It is a complete act of love. It's very rare for you to make a living at it. It's very rare for you to hit it at, at, at all. <laughs> but you, so you have to sort, I mean, I, what I take out of it is that you have to sort of look at this in a practical way. And also, I, I think that's where the, the risk taking comes in because you sort of realize just how... <laughs> You know, if you're going to mess up, you're going to mess up. So you might as well just go for it kind of thing. And it doesn't help you to not put the best that you can out. It doesn't really help you to hold back. It doesn't really help you to... And and following trends is also... I got to see it from the background as a bookseller. It's just a huge mistake. It's just a huge mistake when, when, you know, this is the thing that everybody's doing. So, you know, you see a whole bunch of people follow along because they will sell books. You can do it. It will sell books. And then you would also box yourself in. Mm -hmm. And after a while, you start to be only known as that thing. And when that thing is over, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) And it's really hard to come back after something. So it really... It's, it doesn't help you to sort of do these sort of gimmicky things in this industry. You might as well be yourself. You might as well trust your instincts, even if they sound wacky. And that's really what I put into this book, because it was just like, you know, I know this is wacky. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and it may never sell, but I, I might as you know, when I was at Stone Coast, I was thinking, you know, if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? So I might as well just just go for it and put my all into it and just see what happens. 
because I've seen what happens when people sort of pl- try to play a, a sort of weird game. Yeah. And it's just not, it's not good for you as a person, but it's, it's not good for you as a writer, as an artist. And, and, and in the long run, it doesn't help you. So in, in that respect, I think the bookstore taught me, I, I mean, there's still, you know, it's like 10 years ago and I'm still unpacking so much of the stuff that I learned uh, running that store. I mean, there's just so much that happened in that three and a half years. I just, you know, it's kind of unbelievable sometimes when I think about it, that we actually tried to do this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a great experience, and we appreciate and thankful for your audacity. Because if you, if you weren't audacious, then we wouldn't have the the story that we have in front of us. So that's that's great. Thank um, you. Well, you and I have been able to to duck and dodge and dive into this book a little bit, but I know that folks and reader, that you're going to have readers that are going to want to read this book and then track you down. Uh-huh. <laughs> either late this year or next year to actually dive deep where you you and I weren't able to go tonight. Okay. Um, so where where can what's your con schedule look like? I know in in May you're normally up in Wiscon, right? You're pretty frequent yeah. attendee of Wiscon, but yeah, what, yeah, I like that con. Yeah, so they could probably find you there in May. But where else can they find you? Find you next year? You you have your con schedule set. It's not completely hard and fast. I'm just still thinking about it. I probably will be going to World Fantasy Con next year because that's going to be in uh, Saratoga Springs, which is not too far from me. Okay. So I'll probably attend that. I'm going to try to get to Rita-Con this year. I mean, next year. Ooh, yeah, next year. <laughs> <laughs> and I will be having a reading here in New York with the New York uh, Review of Science Fiction Reading Series. I think they changed their venue. They used to meet in Soho, but they might be in Brooklyn now. You might want to, you know, if anybody wants to attend, you should check their website out. Um, that will be in February, on February 3rd. Oh, excellent. Yeah, so I've got a few things coming up, which is, you know, still thinking about stuff. I mean, it, it's like hard to believe the year is over and I have to start planning for next year. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, that, I've got a few things. I, I might also attend Diversicon also. I'm Where? thinking about that. Where is it? Where where is it located? I, I think the Versicon is in Detroit. Okay. I believe. I think you're right. So, um, yeah, I think I have I have to double check on my um my schedule and everything, but I was really considering that con. Okay. For next year. Well, speaking of planning and getting your elbow grease going, what are you, what are you working on now? Well, I'm working on my next book. Uh, and that was actually something else that I learned from the bookstore is that, um, a good friend of mine, um, Kenji Jasper, taught me this. Like as soon as you finish the first book, start working on the next one, Excellent. even as you're shopping it around. Excellent. And so I started this book about two, three years ago. I'm, I'm working on a new book called um, Elusive. And it's based on the, the theme of the story of uh, Persephone and Demeter. Mm. So I'm I'm playing with child soldiers and um, a girl soldier, uh, a girl who's been kidnapped to be a soldier in this army, and a little bit based on what's happened in Uganda and places like that. Oh, wow. and, okay. And yeah, so I'm I'm playing with the idea of you know a kidnapped girl and and what happens to her. And, okay. Yeah, and it's not young adult. <laughs> um, um, it's it's going to be very much a it's very much an adult thing so far. So okay, spiral narrative, traditional narrative structure. Now yet, so far what I've been working with is a braided narrative. Okay. So I'm wrapping several stories, I'm braiding them together. Okay. Going and, and playing with time, you know, going back and forth in time. Time. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's great. I can't wait. When you get when you get closer to that, you and I need to to talk to okay. talk again. So, and I might I might find you out. World Fantasy maybe would likely be on my list next year. So, oh. um, yeah, WizCon always conflicts with uh, my local convention, Conquest. Yeah, it's like it's on that holiday weekend too. So it's got you yeah. know. 
unless you really are wanting to be there, it's sort of like a weird time a little bit. Yeah, it is a weird time. And as my kids are at a, such an age too, it's, it's nice to have that hometown convention that weekend. Cause normally yeah. I can go up for two days and still spend a day with my family. So yeah. on that holiday weekend, well, people are going to be interested in, in chatting with you and, and learning more about you and your work. Where, where can they find you online? And I must tell you, they, you definitely have to throw out your Twitter handle because, you know, it's just fun watching the mishmash of, I was looking at your Twitter handle the other day and just chuckling of Calvin and Hobbes and, and (laughs) (laughs) references and, oh, how I miss them. (laughs) So where, where can they find out more about you and your work or just tag along? Oh no, there's nobody following my Twitter. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm, you can find me at my web, my main website, which is uh, com, And that's J E N N percent B R I S S E T T dot com. And uh, my Twitter handle is Jen Brissett. So you can find me that way. I also have a Tumblr page, which is, you know, I use Jen Brissett for that too. So jenbrissetttumblr.com. You can find all those links on my main website. And I just started a Goodreads. I just got my Goodreads author page. Yay. All right. I'll go find you tonight. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So you can find me there. I, I, I might be doing some stuff with Goodreads too, like, you know, question and answer stuff. I'm still figuring out how to use it because <laughs> uh, I only just got the account like last week. Because you have to have a book officially out and in the system for them to give you an author account. So I'm still learning how to use it. But I think I will be using that. So, yeah, so that's pretty much how you can find me. All right. Awesome. I know people will will be doing that. Your Twitter feed was just making was making me I was in tears laughing last <laughs> week. So anything else you'd like to mention to our listeners that that I may have missed? There's probably a ton I've missed, but uh, well, anything else that's top of mind? Well, not really. You covered so much stuff and this is really great. <laughs> Just buy my book, please. <laughs> it's coming out in December. And I know it's the end of the year, but that's a great time for Christmas. And I hope you guys enjoy my book. I, I know our readers will enjoy the book. And you're right. It'd make a, with the theme of love throughout, it would make a great holiday gift of some sort. Oh, that's right. Thank you. Saying yeah. that. Yay! <laughs> make an excellent holiday gift. Well, Jen, as always, it was great to, great to chat with you, and I, I, I can't wait to see you in real life okay. in, next year. So, thanks for yeah, taking the time. Yeah, at the con. Okay, thank you so much for coming for this. This was a great interview. As we wrap up things in today's episode, I just want to highlight a few of the books that have been sent Uh, into the studio over the last few weeks. And I'm going to start off with a new YA or kids book by George R.R. Martin. It is called The Ice Dragon, and it does take place in the universe of A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, This is a beautiful little book with illustrations from Luis Royo. I believe I'm saying the name correctly. And they look like they could all be pencil sketches. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that they were pencil sketches. But A lovely little book. I'm reading the story to my son right now. We're halfway through. He's really enjoying it. I would say it's probably appropriate for about seven and up so far, what I've read so far, even though, to be honest, I am reading it to my four-year-old as well. And I just had to change some of the more mature themes a little bit to make it appropriate for her. But very nice little book, uh, probably about novelette length, I would guess. Definitely check it out. The image for it is in the show notes if you want to see it there and go to Amazon to learn more. The second book I want to tell you about is called The Three-Body Problem. This is an interesting book. It is translated by Ken Liu. I, you know, my pronunciation of uh, Chinese names is not exactly uh, proficient, so I don't know how to say the, the author's name, but it is spelled C-I-X-I-N. I'm sure someone will email me or hit me on Twitter and tell me, how that's supposed to be said. But but this author is the most prolific and popular science fiction writer in the People's Republic of China. Um, he is an eight-time winner of the Galaxy Award, which apparently is the Chinese equivalent of the Hugo Award, and a winner of the Chinese Nebula Award. Prior to becoming a writer, he worked as an engineer in a power plant. And this book <laughs> looks really fascinating. First off, anytime you have 
a, a pyramid on the cover of a book, you're going to grab my attention. So bestseller over in China. Um, check it out. It's the first time available in English, and the sequel to this book comes out in July, uh, published by Tor Books, The Three-Body Problem. If you're looking for something a little bit different, definitely check that one out. Lastly, there's a new book by Frank Herbert. Now, how is he putting out books from beyond the grave? Well, great authors have a tendency to do that. And this is also from Tor Books. It's the ultimate collection of short fiction by Frank Herbert, of course, famously known as the creator of the Dune series, uh, Dune being one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, this book also contains a previously unpublished story and an introduction written by Herbert. Let me look at the year here. I was just reading this the other night. Written by him in uh, 1973 as he discusses uh, the writing process a bit, why he did what he did. A really fascinating little little essay. I'm a fan of Herbert. I've read several of the Dune books, of course, and the Dasadi Experiment. Love his work. Deep thinker. Great writer. This is a big book. You know, It's going to take some time to go through this. Probably not something you would just sit down and read in the course of a couple of weeks, but maybe read a few stories throughout the course of, uh, of every month and in four or five months, you could you could knock this one out. So check it out, The Collected Stories of Frank Herbert. If you're interested in what else has been coming out and what else has been coming to the studio, just come to our website and click on the Books Received page. We update that once or twice a month. And if you're looking for something to read by our staff, you can click on the Books by Us page where we, we list those there as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back. We have hopefully three more shows we'll be posting in December to finish the year. If you have a few seconds, you can take the survey that we have posted in the show notes and on Facebook and Twitter. We would really appreciate that. We can have 40 responses before we get cut off by the app that I'm using. And the survey is to help us move forward in 2015 in a way that our audience would like us to do. So if there's something you want changed about the show or you think could be better, now's the time to let us know. You know, we've been doing this for almost 300 episodes now. There's been a lot of change over the last couple of years between Tim taking over and then Tim stepping back down and, and then me taking the show back over again. And, and so I'm conscious that you know we could be in ruts and maybe we need to mix things up a little bit um, just to keep it fresh and keep it interesting for everyone. So please do uh, take this opportunity to let us know what you like best and what you think could improve or what you might like to see changed. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you again soon. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>